I've entitled the message, The Truth Behind Confessing and Believing. We uh, are in Romans chapter 10, as you know, and I want to move a little quicker here today. I really want to focus, get to verses 8 and 9, where Paul writes and he says, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth, And here's a verse that many of us are familiar with and quote, often use it in witnessing. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I I really want to explain what that means and and dig into it as much as we can and, and look at the setting in which it is found. If I came to you and said, I I got you a ring and you're going to love it. And I said, hold out your hand, close your eyes, and hold out your hand. And into your hand I placed a very precious stone. But there was nothing circular attached to it. And I said, here it is, try it on. Now let's just say it's a big diamond. And you took the diamond, and, and you're trying to put it in it. What is this, a trick ring? You know, how do you, how do you get it? Just without being set in the proper setting and then able to sit on your finger, it doesn't quite give you the impact that that precious jewel could give you. When you read, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, you will be saved. If we understand the setting, that truth has much more impact on us. And there are many scriptures like that in the Bible. This is one of them. And since we are here, we want to find the setting. We're going to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's because, especially in this passage, he can only be properly spoken of in terms of who he is. He is Lord. To say that, to understand it fully, is to understand what Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said when he said, He values not Christ at all, who does not value Christ above all. You either value him above all, the name above all names, King of kings, Lord of lords, or you don't value him at all. And his point, obviously, had to do with the idea, take him as Savior, get your sins forgiven, and go your way. This passage has a different gospel than that. And that's what it's all about. Christ being Lord. You see, when you look at Jesus Christ, the man Christ, you cannot put him in a category with any other man who ever lived. You cannot. You cannot just say he was a great teacher and put him with Confucius. You can't. You cannot say he was a great philosopher and put him over here with Plato. You cannot. You cannot say he was a great religious thinker and put him over here with Buddha. You cannot. The reason being is that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh. And when God came in the flesh, he did not lay aside his godhood. He laid aside his glory, yes. And he was born as a little baby in a little cave, and they placed him in a feed trough, and here was almighty, infinite God 
in the body of a little baby and all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelling in that little body of a baby. And as Tozer said, nothing but a little soft envelope of flesh was there to protect the whole human race from being consumed by all the glory of Almighty God. God came, and he became a man, and thus that man does not fit in any category with any other man because he is God. He is as much God as if he was never man, and he is as much man as if he was never God, and he is both God and man. How's that? So we come to study this Jesus Christ who is Lord. In Hebrews 1.3 it says, "...who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power." control. As Lord, he is master, controller of all that exists. He created it all and he controls it all. And it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mankind took God, who was in the body of a human being, and nailed him to a cross, thought they could kill him, throw him in a tomb, and get rid of him and keep him there. He vacated the tomb but he never vacated his throne. He's on his throne today, and he's king of kings, and he's lord of lords. And the great thing is, we know him. And if you don't know him, the way to know him is in this passage. Let's read through it, shall we? In Romans 10, 4, it says, For Christ, and remember Paul is writing to the Jews that he is so concerned about that don't know Christ, and yet were the ones that had the scriptures. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. All of that is to say that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just to see the mind of the Holy Spirit here and how he put this together is staggering. Because the last statement there, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is taken from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And the word Lord there is the same as you would find it in Joel in the Old Testament. And when you find Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it means that behind it in the Hebrew is Yahweh or Jehovah. Paul is writing to Jews that don't yet know salvation in Christ. He says, whoever confesses him as, and he pulls up Jehovah, straight out of the Old Testament. But you didn't know it was in there, did you? 
I didn't. So that's the thrill of discovery. But this is the setting in which this great diamond is placed. He pulls up Jehovah right out of Joel. And thus he is saying to the Jew, until you see that Jesus is Jehovah and take him as Jehovah your God and see then that Jehovah intended to save all men, not just Jews, but all men. Until you see that, you have missed everything that was in the law of Moses to lead you to the fact that Jesus is Jehovah, the Savior of the world. That is the end of the law which they missed. So that's the setting in which we find this all. Now, they were ignorant of the person of God. We've seen that in our outline because they didn't see their need. Self-righteousness always eclipses a personal need for our Savior. You could say that their theology was autosoteric. They thought they could save themselves. This entire section annihilates that thinking. If you come to it with an honest heart and you come to it as a person who has a semi sort of undefined love for God, as you perceive him to be, if you will be honest and study Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, you will find out there is only one way to get to heaven and to be saved, and it's not your way, it's his way. The autosoteric way will never get you to heaven. You cannot save yourself. That was the mistake of the Jews. They thought they could do good works, keep a little of the law, make up some traditions, keep them, be faithful with that. God would let them into heaven. Ignorant. Ignorant of what God had done for them. Ignorant of the person of God. Thus, they didn't know him personally. The next main thing in our outline here is they were ignorant of the provision of Christ. Which, of course, you would be if you don't see any need to be saved. He says here in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They completely missed, they completely missed God's free gift in Jesus Christ. Can you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9? Jesus spoke directly to their need and they missed it even then. Matthew chapter 9 verse 11 Here is Jesus doing what he came to do, reaching out to sinners to save them, ease their pain, give them an entirely new existence. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Matthew 9:11, "Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners?" And when Jesus heard that, he had very keen ears. I'm sure they're whispering and slithering around like snakes. They were big cowards, these guys. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole do not need a physician, but those that are sick. But go and learn what it means, the scriptures, the scriptures that you study all the time and never see the meaning of. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to people, in other words, who know that they have a problem they cannot solve. Do you fit in that category today? Have you finally come to realize that as a human being, you cannot manage and control your sin? Do you understand that it doesn't matter how many programs you go through? 
Do you understand that it doesn't matter how many positive statements you stick on the mirror of your car or where you spend hours uh, preparing yourself in the morning to look decent to go outside? Those of us missing some of our hair, you know, trying to fluff it up real good. Do you understand that all the positive sayings, all the possibility sayings, all of the positive thinking and all of that and all the 12 steps and all this and that and the other isn't enough to free you from your own personal sin, which seems to be getting worse and worse? Do you understand that? Have you come to see that? Until you see that, you don't see that you're sick with a disease you can't cure and it's called sin. These Pharisees, these religious people, they figured since they had redefined the law to a place where they could fulfill it, that they were righteous because they fulfilled God's law as they defined it. Therefore, they had no need of being rescued because they were doing great. They didn't see what Jesus saw. He said, you look great on the outside. But on the inside, he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a tomb where somebody came by and did a fresh paint job. Looks really good. Just fresh and white. No scuff marks. Nobody's leaned up against there. Nobody put their heel up there. No kids came by and bounced the ball. It's pure white. He said, but inside, you are full of dead men's bones. He said, you're like ravenous wolves. You've got this horrible disease and you won't even admit it. He said, I came to help people that realize they cannot help themselves. And I say to you today, if you have finally come to that place, you've come to the end of yourself. And now God begins. Let him begin. Let him begin to deliver you. Come to him and believe upon Jesus Christ and let him rescue you from yourself today and forgive your sins, give you a new fresh start, and live inside you, enable you to live a different life for the first time ever you will begin to live. He whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. So they miss completely God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And you know what is so tragic? is that they had this aberrant theology. By that I mean they took the scriptures because God gave the Jews the scriptures. They were the custodians of the scriptures. They studied them daily, their leaders. They took the scriptures and redefined them. They spiritualized them, took the meaning out, added their traditions to it. And so what they did is they had an aberrant theology. Their study of God came up with God created in their image even though God's book was in front of them. Now, here's the problem. Their aberrant theology, when they were face-to-face with God in Christ, led them to an aberrant Christology. And thus, they did not understand who Christ was. They did not understand then the person of God. They did not understand what he had come to give them. And they died in their sins and they will live forever without God. If you wonder why we spend time, as we do going through the book of Romans, looking at details of the doctrine that is here, if you wonder why I don't go faster, if I could put it that way, it's because I know how much you forget every week. God forbid we give a pop quiz. The reason I know is sometimes I have to go back and listen to my own tapes to find out what I believe. So, 
Just kidding, sort of. <laughs> there are those things I don't major on, and thus I don't think about them that much, so I have to go back, you know, and forget it. Let's move on. That is the point. We forget so much. So if you wonder why I spend so much time on doctrine, it's because if, if our theology of God is wrong and doctrine is that in the Bible that explains God and His plan of redemption and His way of working and His way as opposed to our way, if that is aberrant, if it's warped, if it's off, if it's fuzzy, we will never be able to apprehend the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. You can come to Christ and be saved and still have fuzzy logic, in the process, and be saved and have it kind of messed up, but you're sincere. But if your theology's off and your Christology's off, here's where it's going to affect you. When a crisis hits your life, when a tidal wave of temptation hits your life, when Satan and his demonic hordes, who are highly organized principalities and powers, Paul called them, when they marshal together their troops in unseen array against your life, are you sufficient to deal with that? Am I? <laughs> no way. Absolutely no way. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul said our sufficiency is of Christ. My Christology cannot be off. I cannot afford to have an aberrant Christology. I cannot afford to have thoughts about Christ that are false. They must be biblical. They must be clear. My Christ must be all that he is to me because without him I can't make it. And neither can you. And that is why I spend the details, time on the details, because we need the sufficiency of Christ. Don't you think for a minute you're going to get by without the full Christ at work in your life? And if you have, by contrast, the full work of Christ in your life, he said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now that's a long way, isn't it, from where you used to be. That's apprehending a full Christ. Paul said, this one thing I do, I leave the past behind I learn from the good. I thank God for the good. I leave all the legalism and the religion and the tradition and all of that permanently behind. And this one thing I do, I press on toward the upward call of God, the prize of Christ and to know Him and to know the power of His resurrection. Why? Because I need Him and that power every day to live the abundant life. The thing is, the abundant life is for all of us. It isn't for the extra credit bunch over here in the front row. God bless you guys. I know you're the best. God don't make them any better. That's fact. But it isn't just for the extra credit bunch. It's for all of us. A full Christ. And so how tragic. Paul's heart breaks that they were ignorant of the provision of Christ. And as a result, they were ignorant of the place of faith. We come to uh, Romans 10 here, verse 5, and Paul says, For Moses writes. Interesting, in talking about salvation by faith, he goes back to Moses. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And this is what he writes, That the man who does those things shall live by them. To verify the place of faith in salvation, Paul goes back and he quotes Moses. You know what he's quoting? Do you know where he's quoting from? This is an advertisement. 
Leviticus 18.5. We're going to start Leviticus next Sunday night. Leviticus 18.5. Here's an amazing thing. Paul is in a passage that defines saving faith. We get to verse 9, 10. Along the way, he quotes Leviticus 18.5. That is to say there's some treasure waiting for us in Leviticus. For now it is to say this. Paul's point is that if you think you can be saved by keeping the law, by just doing good things and living right before God, it's impossible. That's his point in quoting Leviticus. So self-righteous and so confused on the issues of the law were the people of the day that, remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? The Bible says he came running. He was full of enthusiasm. He came running up to Jesus. And Jesus says, you have the law and the prophets. Have you kept? He says, I've done it all from my youth up. Got it all down tight. What do I lack? You have something new. Give me the finishing touch. Oh, yeah, right. You kept it all. You never coveted. You never broke one of the Ten Commandments. You see, they were so confused on it that they didn't see that the only way to be saved was by faith. They failed to see that the end of the law was to drive them to everything the law spoke of, which was Christ. You sit at the bottom of the mountain for 11 months in the book of Exodus with God and Moses and the people, and they build the tabernacle, and he gives them his word, his revelation, and everything there speaks of and points to straight to Jesus Christ. And God said to Moses, do it exactly as I say, because this blueprint has come out of what's actually in heaven. I want it done right. It points straight to Jesus Christ. The whole book of Hebrews takes all of that and explains it in full panoramic detail that every single bit of it pointed to Christ, folds it all up, pushes it aside. When Hebrews is all done, you have nothing but Christ himself left. And they missed all of that. Ignorant of the place of faith, rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He is wanting Jesus to tell him one more thing he can do to earn a few more coupons, if I can put it that way. Put a few more blue chip stamps in his book. For your older people, the old green stamps. So he could go to the redemption center and come, come in and get redeemed with his coupons, you know, his stamps all in the book, and he's got all his goodies piled up and got all these points with God, and he stands at the pearly gates. Peter, let's see. Oh, my. Oh, woo. Oh, my. You know, these coupons are really hard to come by. Where did you get that? I had to pay a lot for that. That's valuable. That's going to get you a mansion. Okay? You know, could we auction this off? Maybe... You see, they had the idea. He comes, he comes running to Jesus. What must I do? One more thing. Tell me. Jesus says, oh, really? You've kept the law, the whole thing. Oh, yes. Testing time. Go sell everything that you own. Give it all away. I imagine him pointing to Peter, James, and John, and all those who had left everything to follow him. And come and follow me. That's the last thing. And he went away Sorrowful. He could not come by faith. That's how misconstrued they had the whole thing. So he points to Moses. Moses himself said, if you're going to try to be saved by the law, you're going to have to do it perfect because if you miss one point of it, then you will be lost. 
That is why God sent Christ to fulfill the law and to die for us. And in verses 6 through 8, what Paul is doing here is he's showing us that there's no big mystery about all of this. I mean, face it, sin is a complex issue. Sin is like a spider that gives birth to a hundred little babies and they go crawling in every direction at once and it all happens in minutes. You ever seen that happen? You ever walked up on a spider web with little baby spiders being born? It's the creepiest thing you've ever seen in your whole life. (laughs) Sin is like that. And our life is full of these little creepy crawlies. And we try to grab the one and a hundred run off in another direction. And then we see another one. They're giving birth to a thousand. And we try to grab the one and a thousand run off that way. You cannot manage it. You just can't manage it. And so God has given us provision in Christ. He died for our sins. He forgives us for our sins. He comes to live within us. He's risen from the dead. He comes to lead us, to guide us, to empower us. He washes us with the water of the word. And it's not complicated to be saved. To live in sin is extremely complicated and extremely frustrating because you cannot manage it and you cannot control it. Add to that the reality there is a real devil. And he took one-third of the holy angels with him in rebellion. And they have supernatural power to the extent that fire came out of heaven from Satan and burned up Job's crops. And an army came in and took all of his servants and all of his cattle, and they came from Satan. Add that to the creepy crawlies that you can't manage of the sin in your own life, and you have a problem. (laughs) A major problem. And we have a major Savior who took care of the whole problem at the cross. He paid the price. And so what Paul is wanting the Jew to see, who's missed it because of their religion, their coupons, doing good things, and he quotes directly from Deuteronomy, is to show them it's not mysterious how to get out of this. You need to believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth, Christ is Lord, and he'll save you. And so, Romans ten six, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, he adds Christ in, because he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy. He says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth. And in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preached. Moses stood with the people wrapping up all that God had done with them. He told them, you're going to have to live by faith in this God who's so faithful to you. He came to you. He revealed himself in detail to you. You don't have to go running around like the rest of the world, the pagan world, trying to find out who God is, where he is, and how to get to him. He came to you. His word is now in you. His word is now in your heart. It's on your lips. Your relationship with God is so close, it's in your heart and on your lips. That's what Moses was saying to the people. Stay that way, walk that way, live that way with God, and he'll bless you. Paul takes that straight out from Deuteronomy and adds Christ into the picture, and he says, how close is Christ to save you? He's as near as your own heart and your own mouth. And that's how simple it is, and it's simple enough that a child can understand it. And so in verse 9... He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
He's defining saving faith to a group of people who think they are saved by going to church, by going to synagogue, by doing good works. He, he is here. This is exactly what he's doing. He's not just tossing out a random verse to use in witnessing. He is defining saving faith to those who think they are saved by doing good things and by being religious. Verse 9 is a definition of saving faith. To those who think they're saved by works, lighting candles, going to mass, going to church, being in church even now. If you think this saves you, he is defining the way you get saved. This is saving faith. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. The heart is the center of your being. It's not the pumper, the ticker in your chest. It's the center of your being. You take the center of your being and you just lay it all at the foot of the cross and embrace Christ. With the heart, the center of your being, you believe unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So Paul takes all the mystery out of it. And he says this is how simple it is. But you see, in our day and age, it has all been redefined. Just like in the time of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees had redefined the law of Moses. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard it said, I say to you, what it really meant. You have heard it said, they redefined it, let me tell you what it really meant. And he went right down through what the rabbis taught and what God really meant. And he said, it's a heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And he showed them what the scriptures really meant. Effectively, we have to do that today, you see, because so many today believe that if you just confess Jesus is Lord, then you're saved. In other words, they've reduced it to a mechanical ritual. Open your mouth, utter the syllables, Jesus Christ is Lord God, please save me, come into my heart. Take me to heaven when I die. That's it. If you have said that, you're saved. It's not up for grabs. It's not negotiable. He has saved you. It is a done deal. Don't judge me, brother. I said it. I did it. I'm done. You understand what I'm saying? There are vast multitudes of people who believe that if you go through the mechanical process of saying the words, that's it and that is all that matters. Paul is talking about the center of your being bowing to the Lord Almighty God in submission. And that's a long way from just mindlessly uttering some words. You understand? This is saving faith. It's laying hold of God with the deepest part of who you are. To submit to him as your Lord and your master. That's it. Confess the Lord Jesus. What it does not mean is a simple acknowledgement that he's God and Lord of the universe because the devils believe that, James said, and they tremble at the thought. It means 
You have deep personal conviction without reservation that Jesus is your master. He is your sovereign. He is your God. It means that you will turn from your sins to follow him and trust him for salvation and submit to him as Lord. It means your will be done, not mine, for the rest of my life. It is effectively all of that. Lord, right here, Lord. It has to do with control. You see, when we come to Jesus for salvation, we come to the one who is Lord over all. And he becomes Lord over all. Your life, any other message that proclaims to be the gospel that leaves that out is not the gospel. This business of just accept him as Savior and ask him to forgive you for your sins, that's all he cares about. Tell me where the Bible says that. It does not say that. Paul, in defining how a man is saved, says you come to him with the center of your being and you embrace him as the Lord your God. Lord, it's control. Let me me just put it a whole different way. If you've ever gotten mad at Adam, I've gotten mad at Adam many times. You know, if it wasn't for Adam, we wouldn't be in this mess. You're walking through a field barefoot. You step on a bunch of thorns. You sit down, you're plucking them all out, and you're hating Adam every second of it. Have you ever thought, well, if I was there and I was Adam, I wouldn't have rebelled, not me. I would have left that tree alone. There's plenty of other things to do. Well, you see, Adam was there, and he rebelled. What was his sin? What caused the human race to fall? I don't want you ruling over me. I make my decisions, and the human race is plunged into sin. God, in his infinite grace has given you and given I the honor to step up to the plate and make our decision. I will have you rule over me. You will be my God. I turn from my sin to follow you. I don't want to live in rebellion. I don't want to be my own God. I don't want to be the master of my own destiny. You are the creator of all things. You are king of kings and lord of lords. I submit my life to you, to as many as received him. Who? Christ, who is Lord, who is Jehovah in the Old Testament, to as many as receive his lordship over their life. He gave the power to become the sons of God. I receive you as my Lord. Become my king. Be my God. And he gives you the gift of forgiveness in an instant, and it lasts forever. And until that submission takes place, you don't have it. He's not a badge you stick on your shirt, Jesus, you know. He's not a bumper sticker you slap on your car, not condemning those that have them. It isn't just adding Jesus to your life. It's coming and bowing before Almighty God. And you confess that Jesus Christ is now your Lord and you receive him as your Lord and King. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord, from here on out. Forgive me, God, for I have sinned, and he forgives you. See, in Joel 2.32, this is directly from where Paul is quoting, it says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. L-O-R-D, all caps, in in Joel, that's Jehovah right there. Whoever calls on Jehovah shall be saved. He's doing a couple of things. He's quoting this to show the Jew that salvation was always meant for everybody, not just them. 
He's quoting this to show the Jew that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Jehovah of Joel 2.32. Doesn't matter what your secret sins are. Doesn't matter what your public ones are. Doesn't matter how far you have fallen into the pit and crossed over every line you never thought you'd cross over and how corrupt you've become even to shock yourself. That if you will call upon him, he will save you. But you call upon him as Lord, as God. And so he comes to you to rescue you from yourself. C.S. Lewis, and this is a typical Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis said, Seek Christ and you will find him, and with him everything else is thrown in. I love that. That's totally Lewis. It's just a genius speaking in common man's terms. You come to Christ, you seek him, and you will find life, and you will find salvation, and you will find everything else you really ever wanted in the deepest part of your being because God created you, and you're running around unplugged, as it were, for your whole life. You never really know who you are and what life is to be for you. Frances Ridley Havergal understood this when she wrote the words, Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed, finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. So you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord. What does it mean to believe in your heart? It means to trust him, to cling to him, to rely upon him in the center of your being, not just your emotions on a guilty moment. Why the resurrection? Why do you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Why that? Specifically, why that? Could have been other things. Why that? Because the resurrection is the ultimate validation. Listen, Jesus Christ wasn't like anybody who ever lived. He raised the dead. He healed the blind. He put new limbs on bodies where they'd been severed. But he also said this, I am the only way in. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody's going to get to God except through me. He made staggering claims. Why the resurrection here? Because it's the resurrection that validates all those astonishing claims across the board. You believe that he was crucified for your sins and that he was risen from the dead because he's God and it validates all those claims. And what you are doing when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth is you're saying this, I believe he is who he said he was, I am. The I am of the burning bush with Moses. I believe he is who he said he was. The only way excludes every other way. All others are thieves and robbers and deceptions. I believe that. When you're confessing Christ as Lord with your mouth, you are saying, I believe that when he said he was going to the cross to die for my sins, that that's exactly what he did. And then when he cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because God put my sins on him and that which was to be me forsaken forever became Christ in my place. And I believe he rose again from the dead to prove that he effectively conquered it and paid the price of my sin and conquered death and rewarded and sitting at the right hand of the Father is the proof of it. All of this is bound up in confessing with your mouth that Christ is Lord. It is the farthest thing from some mechanical thing you say. And yet there's people, and they'll probably walk out of this place today. And if you stop them and say, do you know him? Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? They'll say, oh, yes. 
And please tell me why God's going to let you into heaven when you die. Well, because I prayed the prayer. When did you pray the prayer? Well, you'll be happy to know it was 50 years ago. Oh, 50 years ago. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that more abundantly. Oh, man, you're so far ahead of me. Tell me of the abundant life. I can't wait. Rivers of living water. Love beyond knowledge. Joy unspeakable. Just give me a little drop of a deep well. What are you talking about, well? I prayed the prayer. It's a done deal. My favorite beer is Bud Light. My favorite bar is such and such. If it's whiskey, we're talking Jack Daniels. If it's cocaine, we're talking uncut. If it's heroin, we're talking in the neck, not the arm. I want it now. I want my buzz immediately. If it's downers, we're talking reds. If it's uppers, we're talking whites. If it's speed, we're talking the real thing. If it's just a slight float, we're talking Alice in Wonderland and mescaline. What are you talking about? Abundant life. I prayed the prayer. I'm a Christian. No, you're a drug addict. You're a drunk. You hang out in bars. You don't know God. You prayed a prayer with your mouth 50 years ago. It was mechanical. You did not surrender the essence of your being, all that you are, to God as Lord, and your life never changed, and you have no right to claim redemption, period. Until you come to Christ and believe on Him as Lord, that He died for your sins and rose from the dead to come and live inside of you and take Him as Lord of all, you don't have Him at all. Take Him as Savior now, get a forgiveness now, take Him as Lord later. You don't have Him now. Now, do we understand all of that when we bow our heads as confused, messed up, broken-hearted sinners? No. But it is the essence of that that drives you into the arms of a rescuing God. And from that moment on, any little fragment of what we've been talking about is the sweetest possible tonic to your soul. And you want all that you can get because He alone can satisfy, fulfill, and free. Christ alone is sufficient. And so this is what confessing with your mouth is all about, the Lord Jesus. You confess he is your Lord. It is far beyond some mechanical process. So much we could say about this. With the mouth, confession, he says in verse 10, is made to salvation. Confession, verse 10, with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Confession here is the Greek word amalageo. It means to say the same thing. What is your mouth supposed to say? Verse 9, the Lord Jesus. The demons cry out in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The demons know that he is God. But notice, they cry out, what have we to do with you? Do not send us to the pit before our time. They know he has control. They know that he is God. They do not cry out, you are our Lord. Because they have rebelled and live in that rebellion forever. They know who he is. They believe rightly about who he is. When I say with my mouth, he is Lord, I am not saying what the demons say, 
I am acknowledging him as my sovereign ruler. And when I confess, it means to say the same thing, I am saying that I agree with everything the Bible says about Christ, who he is. I am confessing the fullness of a biblical Christ. When Jesus appeared after he rose from the dead, and Thomas was in the room, remember that? Thomas said, I will not believe that it's him unless I can stick my finger in the hole, the nail hole in his hand or the, in his side. When Thomas, in John 20, 28, saw Jesus and Jesus appeared, he said in verse 27 to Thomas, reach out your finger, behold my hand. Go ahead, take your hand, put it in my hand, your finger. Thrust it into my side. He said, Thomas, don't be faithless, but believing. Now follow this. You believe in your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ. You confess with your mouth that he is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. What is that? Thomas is there. Jesus says, go ahead, put your finger in my hand. Go ahead, put your finger in my side. Thomas does neither. He falls to his knees, and this is what his confession is out of his mouth. Thomas answered and says, My Lord and my God. Lord, sovereign control. God, 100% deity. And there is Thomas in saving faith, acting out in front of us. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That's the way a man is saved. That's the way a woman is saved. And the great thing is when you come in that kind of humility... To Jesus Christ, the person Jesus saves through belief and confession, understands who he is and willingly submits to his authority, though not understanding all of it, this may help you. If you take the book of Acts, I'll leave you with this thought because we're out of time. If you take the book of Acts and you look at in the old King James Version, go through the book of Acts, look for the word Lord. You'll find it 102 times. Look for the word Savior. You'll find it in two verses. It says something, doesn't it? It says the issue is he's Lord. And when he saves you, he saves you as your Lord. Or he doesn't save you. You come to him as your Lord. You make him your Lord. You receive him to as many as received him as their Lord. That's how you get saved. You want to know something? The entire New Testament, again, if you take the old King James for sake of being consistent, in the entire New Testament, how many times do you think the word Savior is used as opposed to Lord? The whole New Testament. In the whole of the New Testament, the word Savior is found in 24 verses. In the whole of the New Testament, you will find the word Lord in 657. You believe in your heart that he is God, that he died on the cross and rose again to be your Lord. And you come in humble submission to him, and you receive him as your Lord. And he gives you the free gift of eternal life, and he forgives in a moment of time all your sins, past, present, and future. And when you die, he takes you to heaven. And you will not be one of those people who said to him when they stand there in judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And he says, I never 
knew you. Why does he say that? What is he saying? He's saying, don't call me Lord when you refused your whole life long to allow me ever to be your Lord. And he says, I never knew you. He attaches it to that issue. When he is your Lord, you know him, and he knows you. When he is not your Lord, he doesn't know you, and you don't know him. I never knew you is only said to people he never knew. Pretty heavy, isn't it? On the other hand, pretty wonderful. So simple, it comes down to this. Do you believe Christ died for your sins? Do you believe he was God? Do you believe he rose again from the dead? Do you believe he ascended into heaven? Do you believe he came to rescue men, women like you, from your sins? Do you believe that? Do you want the forgiveness? Are you willing to have him rule over your soul? Do you want the abundant life? Do you want God to fill that empty void inside? If you want that and you are willing to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and you take him right now just as you sit, say yes to God, he'll save you. That's it. And he will come to live within you, and he will prove that he has come to live within you. And he will do it every day that you live. And he will prove it best when you need him most, when the times are toughest. He will be there. Other times when you're griping about this and that, it's fairly lightweight. He might let you go through it to learn a few things. But when it's rock bottom and you need him, he will never forsake you. And he'll prove it over and over and over and over. Who is sufficient for these things? Not a one of us. For our sufficiency is of Christ. And that's where the abundant life comes from. That's where the peace that passes understanding comes from. That's where the joy unspeakable comes from. And it comes to all that take him, believing in their heart that he is God. And then take him in as your Lord. And to confess him as Lord is to agree with all that God said in the Bible about him. Jesus is Jehovah to me. He's the God of the Bible. And now he's my God. Is he your God? If he's not, give him your life now. Leave here with God. If he is, bow your head and your heart now and thank him from the center of your being. He saved you forgave you and he loves you and he wants to send you away from here with joy and refreshment and forgiveness send you out as clean as the driven snow confess your sin leave your burden with him with a God who forgives and get this forgets we have injustice done to us and we tally it up and we don't forget he will forgive and he will permanently forget Whatever you confess to him now, let's pray, shall we? Lord, forgive us for our sins. We do believe that you died for us. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin on the cross. Forgive me, God, for my sins. Live within me, Lord. Rule over my soul as Lord and King. Not my will. I want your will to be done. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. Rescue me from myself, Lord. Give me the abundant life only you can give and take me straight to heaven on that appointed day when I should die, out of the shadow lands and into the glory forever. And here and now I will give you all the praise and honor 
For I do ask these things in the name of my Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.